hi hello what is up and welcome or welcome back to girl you haven't heard a podcast where we discuss true crime and black history from a critical decolonial lens but above all else without all of the unnecessary copaganda so this week it's true crime week and we are going to be talking about the salmon arm bc teen love triangle gone wrong so because this case does involve minors, I might not be able to have as many pictures that I usually have, but I will do my best. There's also not a lot of background information on them because they are minors, so that information is withheld. Monica Jonathan Sikarski was born and raised in Salmon Arm, British Columbia, Canada. Salmon Arm is a small town with a population of just under 20,000, and it's located in southern BC. It was considered a city before it was downgraded to a village in 1958, and then in 2005 it became a city once again. It's a hot spot for tourism in the summer as it has beautiful scenery, many beautiful beaches, camping sites, hikes, and just all around natural beauty. At 17 years old, Monica and 22-year-old Tyler Myers began dating. To me, this age gap is a little bit suspect because like, she's a minor and he's 22, but everybody else seemed to be more or less supportive of their relationship. Okay, so a little bit about Tyler. Tyler William Myers was born on April 11th, 1986 in Salmon Arm, British Columbia, to parents Dusty and Barbara. He had sisters Mara, Christina, and brother David, who absolutely adored him. He had a very big family who loved him dearly, his aunts, his uncles, his cousins, and his grandparents. In September of 1997, Tyler moved in with his father and his stepmother, Donna Linklater, and had two new step-siblings by the name of Sandy and Brandy, and they moved in Campbell River. After he graduated in 2004, Tyler returned to Salmon Arm, and on July 10th of 2004, Tyler was involved in a tragic car accident in which his father passed away and he was witness to it all. Tyler struggled a lot after this, understandably so, and he spent the next couple years of his life searching for meaning of all of this and figuring out where he belonged. After this, he moved back to Campbell River to be with his family, and then in March of 2006, Tyler moved back to Salmon Arm. He followed in the footsteps of his father and began working in construction, and he later then pursued a career as a pipe layer. Tyler enjoyed spending time with his family and friends, and he absolutely adored his girlfriend, Monica, and he often spoke of wanting a better life for himself, but ultimately for his girlfriend, who gave him a newfound reason for living. On the surface, they seemed like an extremely happy couple. But Monica did have a little side piece, whose name has not been made public under the Youth Criminal Justice Act, so we're just going to call him John Doe, or JD for short. So Tyler was unknowingly in a love triangle, and he was in competition with someone who he had no idea. When and how Monica and JD got together is unknown, but Monica was 17 and JD was 16 at the time and they met at school. They were classmates. So in this situation with JD, she was the one who held the power and the influence, kind of flipping how I would imagine it to be in her relationship with Tyler. Monica herself would later go on to admit that she loved the attention she received from dating two people at once and she knew the power that she wielded over JD. Now, it's unclear how exactly Tyler became aware of Monica's second boyfriend, but I don't imagine it took long for him to find out. As I mentioned before, it's quite a small town, so it's fair to assume someone told him or Monica had told him herself. She loved the attention and the drama that would come from cheating on Tyler. Monica made it clear to Tyler that he could confront JD if he truly wanted and set up a time and place for the two of them to do just that. 
Tyler's mom would go to drop him off at Bastion Elementary School on November 21st, 2008, under the impression that he was going to school to hang out with friends. She knew he was meeting Monica and Justin James Dupset and possibly some others, but she didn't really pry too much as he was 22. She didn't really want to get involved in his business like that. Hanging out at the school was not something out of the ordinary, so she didn't think twice about it. She didn't disclose exactly what was going on, and she was unaware of the relationship troubles that were going on between Monica and her son. So she dropped him off and went home. Monica met Tyler at the school as planned, and together they walked and talked towards the back of the school near a wooded area, going far enough inwards that they would receive cover from the trees, but strategically leaving him in a well-lit area. Tyler did not know that JD was hiding behind the trees in the wooded area with a rifle. Tyler thought that he was going to confront JD, Meanwhile, JD and Monica had set up this whole plan to murder Tyler. Monica began to execute what they had planned and discussed prior to this day. She was to walk further into the woods, away from Tyler, leaving him alone, and then JD would emerge with the gun. As Monica walked away and had her back turned to the pair, she heard the gun go off three or four times. She then watched from afar as Tyler attempted to run away, only able to get a couple steps further before falling on his face and his stomach. At this point, Monica and JD walked towards Tyler, who was slowly dying in front of them. JD was panicking, but Monica was calm, cool, and collected, but they were both kind of unsure of what to do next. Monica then turned to JD and told him to shoot Tyler again. The shot that killed Tyler was a fatal one to the back of the head. Scared that someone would see them or would come looking to investigate what was going on due to the shots fired, Monica and JD left the scene. They returned the next day on November 22, 2008 to stage the scene as if it were a drug deal gone bad to throw police off of their trail because it's obvious that Monica would have been the first one that they looked to as a suspect because she was the last one to be seen with him, the last one known to be with him, and she was also the girlfriend. So that's two strikes right there. This same day that they went back to stage the scene, Tyler's body was found at around 7.30 p.m. by a man who was walking the trails and immediately called 911. Police were immediately on the scene and they looked for evidence, came up with basically nothing. So this is once again just showing that the police are not very helpful in preventing crimes, nor are they very good at solving them or gathering evidence to solve the case. On November 22, 2008, both Monica and JD were interviewed by the RCMP but completely denied their involvement. Since the RCMP had no other clues, leads, or possible suspects, the case went cold for the next four years. Four years. What the hell is even that? Four years. So, just showing again, the police are not effective. How you go four years with no other clues, leads, or any other possible suspects? Why are you so honed in on Monica from the start? A short while later, in December of 2008, Monica actually broke up with JD and began to date one of Tyler's friends. Oh, you nasty. So this just goes back to the point where she talked about how she was looking for attention and validation and just liked the drama that she was able to create by using men. The RCMP had tunnel vision and so they kept trying to find ways to prove that Monica was responsible for Tyler's murder and they decided to run a Mr. Big operation. This is an undercover operation in which the police try to convince the suspect to confess by telling them that they're talking to a crime boss or gang leader who is really just an undercover police officer that wants them to work for him or be a part of their gang. 
this to me seems extremely excessive and you'd have to be kind of foolish to fall for this but that's just my personal opinion the bc rcmp have actually used this tactic in other cases like with gary taylor handlin but it's often deemed unethical and seen as a way of manipulating the suspects and judges often rule the so-called confessions inadmissible in court due to the manipulative and persuasive nature of the confession. In Monica's case, they used a group of officers to pose as a bunch of high-ranking gang members. They convinced her that they sought her out to recruit her to be a part of their gang, and she believed them. Why she would believe them? I don't know. What does this 17-year-old white girl bring to the table that a gang would need her so badly? Again, don't know. They inquired about Tyler's death and she just told them all about it because she was under the impression that they would help her pin the murder on someone else who was willing to take the fall for anyone involved. She also outed JD's involvement in the whole thing and even later introduced him to the undercover officers. On October 29th, 2012, the two murderers met with an undercover officer and JD admitted to his complete involvement due to advisement from Monica. In early November of 2012, a week after they met with the officers involved in the Mr. Big operation, the RCMP announced that the two teens were arrested and charged with first-degree murder, but at the time, both were minors, so their names weren't made public. Justin James Doucette was also arrested and charged towards the end of 2012. He was charged with accessory after the fact to murder and obstructing justice related to the death of Tyler, but those charges were eventually dropped in 2014. Why? Not really clear, just that they're dropped. The assumption was that he also returned the day after the murder to help them stage the scene and just didn't rat on them, but it's likely that things were dropped due to lack of evidence. If Monica didn't snitch on herself and out herself to the Mr. Big operation, it's very likely this case would have just gone unsolved. So JD's trial happened first, and he was tried at the BC Supreme Court level. The Crown prosecutors, or the prosecuting attorneys, they wanted him to receive a life adult sentence through a charge of first-degree murder. JD agreed to being the one who fired the shots at the beginning of the trial in an effort to plead guilty to second-degree murder. The prosecutors ignored this plea and decided to go ahead anyways with the trial of first-degree murder. During JD's trial, he testified to defend himself in which he admitted to shooting Tyler, but only did so under Monica's orders and instructions. He also said that he was only intending to scare Tyler in order to make him leave Monica alone because that's what Monica really wanted. When the shot hit Tyler the first time, he says that he panicked and then just immediately fired two more shots. He then admitted that the pair of them returned the next day and went through Tyler's pockets in order to stage the scene as a drug deal gone bad under Monica's advisement. So basically, Monica was the mastermind. He then talked about how he and Monica were interviewed by the police the next day, where they both denied any knowledge and involvement in the murder. Now, throughout his actual trial, a psychiatrist testified that he found JD and Monica definitely colluded with one another, but also added that Tyler's murder required significant planning and intention. JD's defense attorney was arguing for him to be sentenced as a minor in order to avoid him becoming institutionalized or preyed on by other men who are in prison serving life sentences. He said that the punishment will impact the youth in a more negative way than if he was charged as a minor. His attorney also stated that JD was addicted to Monica's affection, and so he was constantly seeking her attention and her love. His attorney compared his addiction to that of a drug addict. Alrighty then. 
It was also made extremely clear that Monica was the mastermind behind everything, and his attorney painted Monica as manipulative and controlling. The judge presiding over the case described JD as an emotionally vulnerable teenager. Monica could sense that, and so she targeted him and ended the relationship once he was of no use to her anymore. Prosecuting attorney Evan Goulet said that the jury clearly didn't buy JD's version of events. He also added that JD almost got away with murder, and he was very aware of what he was doing. He went on to say that this was not just a single misstep or bad decision, but he demonstrated a resolve to ensure that the murder was done. He could have stopped after the first shot didn't, second shot didn't, third shot didn't. It was only after the last fatal shot to the head that he stopped because Tyler had already died. Evan says that he took a shot that went directly into Tyler's head while he was laying on the ground, and for an offense of this nature with the series of facts, the only way to hold JD completely accountable would be to impose an adult life sentence. An adult sentence for a first-degree murder would carry a 10-year period of parole ineligibility, but JD would remain under the supervision of parole officers for the rest of his life. If he were sentenced as a minor, the maximum sentence would be six years behind bars, followed by a four-year period of supervision within the community. In June of 2016, at 24 years old, JD was found guilty of first-degree murder by a Kamloops jury. His sentencing was supposed to take place in September of 2016, but faced a series of delays for unknown reasons. On January 23rd of 2017, JD's sentencing hearing began. The initial courtroom where everything began was so packed they had to move to a larger room to make sure that everybody could fit. Like I mentioned, it was a very small town, so everybody knew everybody. So everyone who was connected to Tyler or his family in some way wanted to be there, wanted to show up. JD was sentenced to six years in prison as a minor and was set to be released in 2023. So on May 22nd of 2017, Tyler's mom, Barbara Myers, actually spoke out. She spoke to the media outside of the BC Supreme Court about JD's sentencing, where she said, Obviously, the appropriate sentence for the offender will accomplish its purpose to show accountability and readjust his mindset. Also, it should bring some sort of closure for the family of the accused. I'm sure they're worried sick for their son. To me, it's, it's very considerate that even in the midst of her own struggle with losing her son, she's thinking about the family of the young man now, but who was a boy at the time, responsible for the death of her son. She also said, when it comes to my forgiveness, it's not a matter of whether I forgive him. My concern is that he has heartfelt remorse and that the situation is going to help him too. It's going to make him eventually into the person he's going to become. When asked about whether she believed JD had shown remorse or not, she said she thinks so. From what she saw, she really thinks so. Just knowing his family, his upbringing tells me he comes from a good family. She was actually the very first person to testify in JD's trial and was present throughout the remainder of it. So JD's trial happened first and Monica's was to follow. Just before her trial began in November of 2017, Monica pled guilty to second degree murder for which she was sentenced as an adult, which is what allowed her name to be public despite only being 17 years old at the time of her crime. She was ultimately sentenced to life in prison. So life in prison in Canada like I mentioned before, it's 25 years before parole eligibility typically, but with second degree murder, she was eligible for parole in seven to 10 years and would be on parole and have to adhere to her parole conditions for the rest of her life. 
During her sentencing, Supreme Court Judge Justice Sherry Donegan called the crime inexplicable, stating that Monica had privileges and opportunities that many young people only dream about. She also said that the crime's lack of motive was baffling. Like, Monica really did this for no reason at all, and when asked about it, she had no justification for why she did it, just cause, basically. When Tyler's parents found out who was accused and who was responsible for their son's death, they were both extremely shocked. They never in a million years thought that Monica would be behind this. Monica didn't speak at the sentencing at all or any point publicly throughout this, but the prosecuting attorney just reiterated the details of the case that I mentioned before in JD's trial. So Monica lured Tyler out to the trail. She led him to an area which she knew would be hidden enough to not be seen by passerbys, but well lit enough for JD to be able to fire the fatal shots. She saw him and then told JD to fire the last shot. But it also came out at her sentencing that she was the one who arranged for JD to get the gun. At the time she was formally sentenced, she made an apology to Tyler's friends and family who were present. But Donna Linklater, the partner of Tyler's dad, who unfortunately passed away, refused to accept Monica's apology. She said she thought the apology was fake, should have come forward two days, two weeks, or even two months after and said she was sorry, but didn't. However, Ty Tyler's mother, biological mother at the time of the sentencing, said that she was pleased with the apology and the outcome. She said she was satisfied and stated what made an impression on her the most was that Monica addressed her personally and expressed her heartfelt remorse. In November of 2018, Monica was granted day outings in which she was granted temporary escorted absences from prison until September of 2020, where she would be eligible for full day parole. The parole board said that these absences were for personal development purposes, but didn't release what the reason or the development was. While she was on these absences, Monica was not allowed to consume drugs or tobacco. She was also banned from having any sort of contact from Tyler's family. She was to report all of her intimate relationships to a parole supervisor. On October 22nd, 2021, Monica received a six-month term of day parole after being labeled a low risk for future violence only a couple years after formally pleading guilty to one count of second-degree murder in 2016 and 10 years after the murder of Tyler. She was out on day parole by November of 2021 when Monica was now age 30. Day parole releases a person from prison and allows them to be out and about during the day and they have to return to a community-based residential facility or halfway house. This is meant to test and slash or prepare them for eventual full parole or statutory release. Since you are still on parole, they see it as you still serving out your sentence. The decision to release her on day parole was said to be made based on several factors. They said she had a high level of remorse for her actions, she acknowledged the pain she had caused to Tyler and his friends and family, that she was of low risk to reoffend both short-term and long-term, she was complying with the rules and regulations of the jail, she had a job in the jail, and she had also completed high school and received a university-level diploma in criminal and social justice. There were five conditions to which she had to follow, which were no possession or consumption of drugs, possession of weapons, she had to report all of her relationships and friendships with men to her parole supervisor, and she was not allowed direct or indirect contact with Tyler's friends or family unless required by the courts. 
She had to follow a treatment plan and not possess more than one mobile communication device or SIM card. When her initial release was made public, there were threats on social media, some which were threatening violence towards her. People were not at all happy that she was out and so soon at that. As a result, they changed her release plan, but how they changed it wasn't made public for her own safety. Tyler's friends and family submitted a series of victim impact statements when they found out that she was getting out. They told the board that their decision to give Monica day parole and eventually full parole sends the message to the family that Tyler's life didn't matter, but Monica's future matters. The family also requested that the board impose a restriction to prevent Monica from living on and slash or visiting Vancouver Island due to concerns about potential contact with the family leading to future trauma. The board claims that they took this request very seriously, but all they altered was that she wasn't allowed to go to the island without written approval of her parole supervisor, and there was no mention of whether her parole supervisor was required to then inform the family. They just had to sign off on it. On June 6th, 2022, after she was released from prison and put into a halfway house, she missed her curfew one night when she was out drinking with a friend for dinner. When returning to the halfway house, she was told that the smell of liquor on her could be problematic and potentially trigger other residents in the halfway house as many had addictions issues and had sobriety as a main part of their parole conditions. After her parole was reevaluated, the parole board added an extra no alcohol condition to her release and extended her day parole for an extra six months. The parole board stated that the use of alcohol within months of being released into the community is concerning. When she returned to the center in which she was living, her use of alcohol was easily detected and she was also late. So while these things may be viewed as minor infractions, the board sees them as serious enough in that they present an entitled attitude and an indifference to the fact that she received the privilege of serving out the rest of her sentence in the community. They said, given the circumstances, it's clear her decision-making and consequential thinking skills need work. We have now come to the part of the podcast where I discuss my thoughts. Okay, so first and foremost, I just want to point out that like I personally have very mixed feelings about the verdict and ultimately how this case ended up. I do think that white privilege had a lot to do with the way that the case ended up and the light sentences that they got, but I personally don't believe in, I don't believe that imprisonment and the carceral system is like a valid way of rehabilitating people as it likes to pretend that it does. So I do think that people are getting it twisted. At the point that allegedly incarceration was created for and the prison system is created for, they work under the guise of rehabilitation. So if that's the purpose, why do people get so upset and so pressed when people are released from prison? Like, isn't the ultimate goal that people are released and become functioning members of society? Like, I don't understand. I think there's a big disconnect there. Um, if you want to punish somebody, then that's completely different. I don't think that either reasons are valid for someone being imprisoned, whether it's punishment or supposed rehabilitation. I don't think it works either way. Um, but I do think that that played a huge reason in why this case went the way that it did. But also the fact that she was able to get out a couple years after, like literally three years after she was formally sentenced. And the fact that her male counterpart is still in prison despite being charged as a minor um, and also not being the mastermind, right? They deemed that Monica was the perpetrator, but she got a, a lighter sentence. One thing that I didn't like about her being released and the stipulations of her parole is that she has to be sober 
to me personally when you try and force somebody to be sober it's like you're setting them up for failure like if you don't personally choose sobriety and it's forced on you it's very unlikely that it'll stick so i think if they do genuinely want people to succeed in this carceral prison system and they're trying to release people and set them up for success you have to teach people harm reduction like those principles should apply if you're trying to make sure people can genuinely succeed and still live a happy and fulfilling life because me personally like i am sober like i don't drink i don't smoke i don't do anything but that was a choice that i made if it was forced upon me i wouldn't do it like i just wouldn't because then it wouldn't be something that i wanted something that i felt called to do or participate in to me this case also was not public enough i had never heard of it until somebody had recommended that i cover it over on my tiktok but i hadn't heard of it and that's a little bit ridiculous i don't think at all the parole board was mindful of tyler's friends and families the fact that they submitted all of those those statements when she was being released and they're just like yeah we'll just make sure that she has to check in with the parole board and supervisor but not mentioning okay well are they going to get an alert when she's in town like are they going to know where to avoid like that would just be very traumatic for them to have to see her all of the time so i understand why they made those requests and i don't think that they were followed through enough to be mindful of the family's feelings and protect their feelings so i thank you so much for listening or watching however you are enjoying this podcast episode i hope to see you again next week